You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. So as I said in the the announcements, uh, kind of the overarching theme is God's perfect work through imperfect people. That's kind of the title of our series. Just by a show of hands, how how many of you have read the book of Esther? Okay, okay. And I'm assuming that all of us are familiar with it if we haven't read it um, beginning to end. I actually challenge you to read it for the next 10 weeks, uh, to read it once a week. It's, it's, it's good for your soul. Um, but yeah, disclaimer, right, right, from the, right from the get-go, our plan is to look at one chapter per Sunday. <clears throat> now, you have to realize that we cannot... Uh, we will not be able to necessarily go verse by verse throughout the whole book. That's a lot of verses. Uh, but we will do the best that we can. I think 167 verses, by the way. Anyways, that would be a lot. <clears throat> but we will do our best, the best we can to go through as much scripture as possible in 45-ish minutes. Uh, and today we start with chapter one. <clears throat> but I definitely want to spend considerable time setting up the book. Uh, in other words, to have a pretty solid uh, introduction, and I think this book uh, needs it. <clears throat> so I have, so I don't won't have too much time to 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 get in depth, to go in depth in the first chapter. Um, now I usually have you stand, but you can remain seated. It's it's a pretty big portion of scripture that I'm going to read. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to read kind of half of it, and then I'm going to explain uh, the remainder half. So if you want to um, follow with me, so Esther chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Esther chapter 1, 1 to 10. And you do have it on your screens if you haven't brought your Bible, and that's perfectly fine. And excuse me butchering some of the names here, quite a few names. But a few of them I looked up, so I should be able to, we should be able to be good on that. Now, this is what the Word of God says. Now in the days of Ahasuerus... The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors and provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen in purple to silver rods and mar- marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, porphyry. Marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And we'll stop there. Let me just pray over our hearts this morning. Father, I thank you for what you have done already in this service. 
Uh, Lord God, I thank you what you have for what you already have done, have done, Lord God, all the way up to this point in our lives. You are uh, painting on a canvas much bigger than me and our little salvation here in Garden City. You're painting on a canvas that on a uh, uh, just millions and billions of, of puzzle pieces that you are aware of and not only aware of all them, all of them, but you, you control all of them, Father. And I thank you for this amazing plan that you're going to unify and you're unifying in the, in the work and the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that this morning that you would pierce through our hearts with the gospel, that you, Lord God, would, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would bear much fruit in our hearts. Help us be attentive. Help us, Lord God, not be distracted by anything. Uh, Lord, I pray that none, none of us here this morning would be annoyed at my voice. I, I pray for patience for everyone that's here, Lord God, and bearing my voice. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> One of the cool things about becoming a parent, and we have quite a few parents here, a lot of kids, praise God for that. As many, uh, as many of you know, is that you're, you're able to go back and read some of the old stories all over again, stories that you were familiar with when you grew up, you know? Like Pinocchio, that's kind of one of my favorite stories, you know, growing up. Cinderella, the little red riding hood, that was another one that was kind of my favorites. And they all start with this little phrase, once upon a time, once upon a time. I actually find myself when Taya, our oldest, asks me to tell her a story, and that, that's beside the ones that I actually read to her. She's very demanding. I find myself starting them with once upon a time. Even stories, true stories, stories about Emma and I, you know, how we met. I, I start them with once upon a time. I, I like that. There's something interesting and wonderful about that little introductory phrase, the unfolding drama. Uh, there is an excitement there, the unfolding drama that is about to be discovered and revealed, and it's exciting. Well, today, <clears throat> as we are about to enter this drama, the story of Esther, and so we might begin by saying, once upon a time, there was a beautiful Jewish girl who became the queen of Persia. That's actually the story. That's the story. It's kind of like a, a, a Cinderella story, not quite rags to riches, but certainly a radical transformation in the life of this young Jewish girl. Now, the story is set against the background of an attempt led by one man, and I, I call him uh, you know, an, an evil villain by the name of Haman, <clears throat> to try to exterminate the Jewish population, to try and exterminate the entire Jewish population from the Persian Empire. Now, you need to know that this Persian Empire that we're talking about in the ancient days was the greatest empire before the arrival of the Roman Empire, of course. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on the history today, on the geography of it today, especially the history of it, because it will come up every now and then as we go through the book, through the next 10 weeks. But I definitely want to mention this to you. If you were bumping into the book of Daniel, Ezra, or Nehemiah, and I would love for you to bump into these books often in the next few weeks, then you will discover that they all relate to this particular period of time. And in certain aspects, to the exact geography that we see here in the book of Esther, and by the way, the events in the book of Esther uh, occur from 483 B.C. 
to 473 BC, so the fifth century before Christ, during the first half of the reign of King Xerxes, who chose Esther as his queen. As his queen. Now, <clears throat> Esther is one of the, the only two books in the Bible that is named after a woman. <clears throat> the other one, of course, as you probably know, is the book of Ruth. In Ruth, we are given a glimpse of a life lived under God in the poverty of a village. Different context in, in the book of Esther. The context of the book of Esther, we see a, a um, pretty much the entire opposite end of the social spectrum. So not, you know, struggling to make ends meet in the village, but we're taken into the grandeur, into the extravagance of the palace, the royal palace of this, of this significant king, King Xerxes. Now, you may be asking at this point, this question, what possible relevance is there in, in spending our time as modern people, you know, as dwellers of the 21st century, <clears throat> digging and looking into events that took place two and a half thousand years ago in Persia, what is modern day Iran? What relevance is there for us? Like what, can we get anything from this book? It's so old. And that of course is a good question. But it's actually a question about the nature of the whole Bible, isn't it? Not just the book of Esther. Now, before we get into this drama, the story of Esther, we need to establish some things because this is a different kind of book of the Bible. And, and this will actually help us in studying the whole Bible, not just the book of Esther. And I just don't want anyone to be missing out or to be confused as we do get into the book of Esther. And the first thing that we need to look at and we're going to look at five things, so kind of an introductory sort of a sermon, but I am, we are going to get into the first chapter as well. So, and the first thing that we need to look at is this, the big picture, the big picture. When we study any book of the Bible, any part, any, and maybe particularly one like this, this is a different genre, the book of Esther, right? And as we come to the details that we have painted for us by God on this huge canvas, right? And so God is painting on this absolutely humongous canvas. It is extremely important for us that we see all of these details in light of the big picture. This is what a Bible theologian said in regards to the big picture, and I just love that I wanted to share with you. And I quote, when we are doing our Bible interpretation, we are not in a playground having fun and making it mean what we want it to mean and caring little if others make it mean something else. He goes on to say, and I quote, the real test of the biblical interpretation is not the discovery of what it means to me, but is the discovery of what it means, period. We are engaged in the life and death business of discerning the meaning that is there, end quote. So what he's saying is, let me just translate simply, that who cares what the Bible means to you? I'm sorry to offend you this morning. What matters is that you really, really understand what God meant by the Bible. That's what matters. What God meant by the different biblical passages and promises and stories in the biblical accounts. What matters is the story and the message that God wants to convey and express and not what I make of it. There is 
a phenomenon going on in our day and age today. Namely, making the biblical passage mean what you want it to mean. And it's because of our rebellion against God and it's because of our love of self, the religion of self, that we could care less what God meant by the different passages, by the promises in his word as a whole. In church, if we miss that, we miss the heart of God. <laughs> you miss the whole point. You miss the whole, the mark completely when it comes to being a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. If our church is not interested in ultimately what God means through his word, what God meant through his word, and we put an emphasis on what it means to us, it's time to close up shop. No more summit church, that's for sure. It's even in our values, right? Scripture, our highest authority, and we want to we wanna understand what God meant by the Scriptures, right? <clears throat> now, the Bible is not like any other book, because the Bible is the living word of the living God. That's the claim that the Bible makes for itself. It is a book that understands the reader as the readers seek to understand the book, very different than any other kind of book. And every book of the Bible is God's word. And the events that are recorded in the books of the Bible, and by the way, there are 66 books compiled in the Bible, are in the books of the Bible because God wants them to be in the Bible. Now, Apostle Paul, when he writes the Roman Christians, there's a book called Romans, when he writes the Roman Christians of his day, he makes this very point, and this is what he says in Romans 15, 4. Very, very interesting, and I want us to really focus on this verse. This kind of like, this kind of really brings us painting this picture of the, of the big picture. And I quote, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instructions. So what he's saying, all of scriptures were written for our instructions that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I want us to really focus on that. We might have hope. Now, did you know that there's a hope that stands the test of time? And you may ask, what and where is, is this hope that you're talking about? Well, it is found in the one that the Bible speaks of, the main character of the Bible, the superhero of the Bible, and that's Jesus Christ. And if you read any book of the Bible, by the way, and you can't seem to find who that book is pointing to ultimately, which is always pointing to Jesus, you are missing the point. But let me just show that to you. And this is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3. According to his great mercy, God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, check this out, to a living hope, same hope, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, it's, now, it's, now it's kind of more, more specific, more clear. This hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, from the dead. So when we read, for example, an ancient account like Esther, is it absolutely vital that we're aware of the fact that God is working this living hope that we just read about in our lives and in the lives of millions of other Christians and the millions that have gone before us and maybe millions that, that will come after us, right? That God is working everything out according to a unified and glorious plan of his own, beginning an eternity before creation, moving to eternity after creation. How amazing is that? Let me know if this relates to you. Does this describe you? There was a period in my life when I was searching for God and 
There was a time in my life when all the pieces of the puzzle <clears throat> fell into place and somebody told me that what I was supposed to do to trust in Christ, trust in Jesus and believe in his saving work on the cross and to repent and so on. And I did all of that. But later on, as I began to look back down the quarter of time, this whole thing started way beyond that evening, way beyond that season, way beyond my encounter with Christ on that Thursday night. And that right there, is what Paul is writing about in Ephesians chapter one to the Ephesian church. And I want us to kind of walk through this. Would you please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter one? If you haven't, uh, the text is gonna be up on the screens. And this is what Paul says in verse five. We'll, we'll, we'll start in verse five. We'll kind of skip some verses, but check this out. God predestined us, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Notice, now notice the phrase, according to the purpose of his will according to the purpose of his will. God has a will. God has a purpose. And God is executing everything according to the purpose of his will. Did you know that? There are billions and trillions of, 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 of puzzle pieces, and he's not only aware of them all, but he's in control of each one of them. Pretty, pretty, pretty marvelous. He then goes on, and you can read it all the way through, but let's skip to verse 9. This is what verse nine says, making known to us the mystery of his will. You see it? According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Now, how do we understand the mystery of his will? How, how do we understand his purpose? Well, it is set forth in Christ. Notice verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So again, we stand way back now from Esther, right? We're not even touching Esther at the moment. And we say, now we're going to read this book, this drama that has to do with, with this evil villain called Haman. We, we, we're going to read about an insignificant kind of Jewish guy called Mordecai, kind of related to Esther. We're going to talk about a beautiful girl, Esther, an egotistical and filthy rich king called Xerxes. And before we dive into all of these details in the story, what do we need to know, church? Well, we need to know that God, the author of the book and the one who has preserved and, and retained all the details in it for us has a glorified and unified plan in all of history. And his plan is ultimately to unite all the things in and through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we know so far. Church, that is why the gospel, the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's why they're so emphasized over and over and over and over, you know, again in, in his word. And it should be emphasized in our lives again because the climax, the summit of the purpose of God, the mystery of his will is in the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. That's why you walk to Mark, another book of the Bible, Mark 1.15, Jesus says, and this is crazy, the time is fulfilled, he says, when Jesus was on earth, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe in the good news. What was he saying? He was saying God has been unfolding his plan and his purpose throughout all of the ages of all the time. And in this moment right now, when I'm speaking to you, when Jesus was speaking to the disciples, everything is coming to fulfillment here in this great conclusion, which is my life, my teaching, my death, right? The cross, my resurrection, my ascension, and my return. Now, when you think about some person, 
stepping onto the stage of history and he's actually saying what Jesus said, you say to yourself, that is an unbelievable claim for any individual to make. Unless, of course, he's really the one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, the man God Jesus Christ. So all of that to make this point, that the pictures and the promises and the symbols of the Old Testament we need to understand them as pointing to the fulfillment of God's plan, the plan that we're talking about right now. So if you get yourself in a bit of a mess, <clears throat> let's say in the book of Leviticus, <laughs> right? All the pots and all the pans and all the, you know, I don't understand what's going on here. The washing of all, all these utensils and all these things, cleaning all this stuff and fiddling with all this stuff. Just stand far enough back from the painting. Stand far enough from the canvas, you'll get it. You will get it. God is working everything out. He's putting together a people that are trusting in him for salvation. But if you get too close to pots and the pans, you'll get yourself in a lot of hot water really quickly. Well, I spent a lot of time on that, I know, but I had to. But I'm telling you, it's really important to understand the big picture because otherwise you, you drop into Esther like a lot of churches do, a lot of Christians do, and, and you can do all kinds of things with Esther, right? You can do all kinds of things with the Bible and people do that, right? You can teach stories in a way that simply say, well, you know, Esther was such a nice girl. You should be a nice girl too. Okay, let's go home. I'll see you next Sunday. What? Really? <laughs> you know, you know uh, um, uh, Haman was a bad guy. You shouldn't be a bad guy. Okay, let's, I'll see you next Sunday. No, no. King Xerxes, he, was, he had a big ego. You shouldn't be proud. Okay, let's just pray for that. Go home now. No, no. And I believe it. I believe that people are actually doing that kind of a thing. And after 15 years of doing that, they still don't know the Bible any better the day from the day they started. They still don't know the Lord. They're not more intimate with the Lord from 20 years ago when they, when they began because they never stood far enough back from it to see what it actually, what's happening here. That God is unfolding his amazing plan and he's been doing it from, the, from uh, before eternity before creation, moving all the way to eternity after creation. God is doing something far vaster than the Persian empire in this book. Far more significant than the American empire, let me tell you, or any empire that's still to come. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that? That in the economy and the purposes of God, you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, if you trusted in him, with your life, caught up in this great cosmic adventure. And instead of salvation being this little thing, this little sort of a personal thing, just me, my little salvation here in Garden City, you know? No, 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 no. Lift up your eyes. <laughs> this is much bigger than all of us. This is beautiful. It's nothing like we've ever seen. And, we, and, 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 and we, we, when we stand far enough back to see the big picture, the effects of that in our life are absolutely amazing. You will start living more and more in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ because now you have the right vantage point. You know what you're living for now. May God help us with that. So the big picture, the next point that I want to make is the big question. All of them start with the big. Big picture. Now, big question. Our second point is there's a big question here. We're going to face it briefly, but nevertheless, we're going to face it. What is the big question? If you read the book, you probably know it. If you haven't read it, you probably don't, don't, don't have an idea about it, but we'll obviously talk about it. 
And the question is, where's God in the book? Where's God's name in the book, right? Uh, because Esther is not just one of the two books written to women, but it is also one of the two books in which there's no mention of God's name. The other one is Song of Solomon. So where's the name of God? I mean, this book made the cut in the, in the canon. The name of God never appears in the book of Esther. That's the big question. And believe me, there are all kinds of explanations out there. <laughs> oh, just start reading some of the commentaries. But let me just give you my simplified and annoying explanation. If all of the events of the Old Testament and New Testament are in the Old Testament and New Testament because God intended them to be there, then if his name is not in the book of Esther, it's because he didn't want his name in the book of Esther. Does that satisfy? Probably not. <laughs> I know. I'm not just going to leave it there. Why would God not want his name to appear in the book of Esther? Well, good question. Maybe to teach us something. Teach us what? Ready for this? To teach us at least this, church, that in the events of life, when God is apparently absent, he is not. I'll say that again. That in the events of life, when God is apparently absent, he is not. He is not. Are you going through a season of suffering now and trials? Do you, do you, do you, and you feel that God is absent, nowhere to be found? He is right there with you. Don't trust me, trust the word. He's right there with you. Now, most of the time, God is not present in our life and working in our life in a supernatural way, like the parting of the sea, of the Red Sea, the pillar of cloud by night, and you know, he, he, that's not what happens most of the time. But God is present in the predictable routine of life. In the everyday events of life, God is working his purpose out. When, when, when you get up, when you, you would get the kids up and, and ready for school in the morning, when you mow the lawn, it's when you make breakfast, when you punch in at 8 a.m. To, to, to go in your job and to start work. That, that's, God is working his purpose out in the details of life. So God, although his name does not appear all the time, he is working. And so you'll find as you read through this, the story of Esther, that God is at work in the refusal of this Persian queen, Queen Vashti, to her husband's demands. God, God, God works through that. He's at work in the sleep patterns of the king, King Xerxes. We'll see that. We'll talk about that in the chapters to come. God is actually working by overruling the hatred of this evil, evil man, evil villain, Haman. But by the way, it's, it's, it's Haman's hatred, by the way. God hasn't programmed him to hate no, no, no. Even though he's working out his plan, God hasn't programmed him to hate. He hates Mordecai. He hates the Jewish people. That's what he is. He's a hateful person. So God is controlling and using everything for his ultimate will and purpose. And by the way, God is not generating evil either, but he is using it to accomplish his awesome and glorious plan. It's the Genesis 50, 20 principle with Joseph. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And, and also, again, I want to I state this over and over again. He hasn't programmed people to do certain things so that he could carry out his plan flawlessly. He doesn't need that. No, no. Again, Haman hated because he chose to hate, because he was a hater. That was his choice. Spurgeon has a really cool illustration about the absence of the, of the name of God in the book of Esther. Love this. I want to share with you. <clears throat> and he says, and I quote, Although the name of God does not appear in the book of Esther, the Lord himself is there most evidently. And then he's using this metaphor. 
And he says, I have seen portraits, right? Bearing the names of persons for whom they were intended and they certainly needed them, right? So what he's saying is that I've seen paintings, right? And the name at the bottom, like Aunt Molly or whatever, you know what I mean? It's really important because otherwise you wouldn't have a clue who it was, right? Uh, This reminds me a couple of years ago when Eli was born, I wanted to surprise Emma, my wife, with this painting. There's this company that if you send them pictures, they can kind of paint the pictures and they can kind of do them the way you want them to on this canvas, like a painting, right? So Eli was a baby. I took a picture of baby and then and tail was two and I wanted to combine the two and surprise Emma with this beautiful painting, right, of our kids, right? And when, when we got the painting, I remember Emma was, I was excited. Emma just kind of, what, what's this? What's this over here? Just, just, just open it, babe. And then she opened it and she looked at me and she's kind of like, what am I looking at here? <laughs> are, are you telling me that these are my kids? <laughs> so kind of like that, like, I, what, what, I don't know what's going on here. And then Spurgeon says this, let me finish the point. But we have all seen others which required no name because they were such striking likenesses that the moment you looked upon them, you knew them right away. And this is my point. God takes his name out of Esther so that the moment that we look into Esther and we read it again and again and again, we say, that's God, that's God. Oh, that's God right there. That's God. That, that's God right there. So this is what I say to, to us, church, this morning. When God appears to be most absent in your life, trust in him. He's at work. He's at work. And he is at work in the predictable routine of life. Do not expect him to part the Red Sea. He may do it. Don't expect that. Expect that he's at work in the, in the details of life. May God help us to trust in him there. So big picture Big question and now big deal, a big deal. This is the point that I want to make next. Simply put, this king, King Xerxes, is a big deal. He's a big deal. He's not as big of a deal as he thinks he is, right? Maybe, maybe I should mention this before uh, people get super com- uh, confused. The Bible refers to him as King Ahasuerus, okay? That's what we read. Why is Ovi saying King Xerxes? Well, King Ahasuerus is his Hebrew name. King Xerxes is his Greek name. But most scholars believe that they're the same person. So it's the same person, just easier for me to say Xerxes than Ahasuerus, okay? So they're the same person, just so you know. Now, big deal. This is what we're doing. Big deal, right? Now, under any standard of of kings and dominions and authorities and powers in the history of mankind, this particular king stands out as significant as being a big deal. Again, although the name of God does not appear in the book, Do you know how many times this guy's name appears in 167 verses? Take a guess. 167 verses. How many times do you think his name appears in the book? Just shout out loud. 190. More than there's verses. (laughs) Yeah. And we're told as we read the opening verse... We learn right away of the extent of his influence. I mean, you know, the narrative, you know, pulls no punches. And he reigned, and he reigned from India to Ethiopia. India and Ethiopia, by the way, represented the extreme boundaries of the known world. He was pretty much the king of the world. Now, what we see happening in chapter one is that this picture of King Xerxes being a big deal builds up. It builds up until verse 10. And the author, again, pulls no punches in relating that to us. For, for instance, verse 2, he says, In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, 
Additionally, verse three, he's pictured here as giving a feast, actually giving two feasts, the first lasting for 180 days. Uh, Can you imagine a feast that lasts for six months? (laughs) Now that's some party. I'll I'll give him that. (laughs) Obviously he was going for breaking some Guinness world record, I'm sure, you know, and, and so he can have his name and lights. And again, his egotistical character comes out and then follows it up with a feast that lasts seven days, a kind of a, a garden party, the Bible says, as if the first party was not enough. Like, why, why would you do that? Anyways, and, and in verse six, we're given, of course, the details of the interior design and the opulence that we see at this other party. In verse 3, we're told that the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces, what? Were before him, were before him. Again, we get a picture of his egotistical character before him. It's a picture of, man, I got to have everyone bow down to me, okay? Because I'm the king of the world, right? He's playing God. He wants to be worshipped as God, and he thought of himself as God. And he used it as an opportunity in verse four to show the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days. That's what verse four says. Now we get the picture, right? I'm not gonna, I had pages, pages from history of how big of a deal this guy was. I kid you not. I'm not gonna bore you with that. So we get the picture. This man is a big deal. But as the, unst- as the story unfolds, as we will go on and, you know, to see, um, we'll see it quickly, and it's not quite, he's not quite as in control as he thinks he is. He may be in control as we're told that he's over 127 provinces, but he cannot control his wife, one. He might be able to control a vast area from India to Sudan, but he cannot control his temper. Uh, and what we're going to discover in reading through the book is that this man who's such a big deal, he is going to discover that he himself is subject to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. In Psalm 2, which is quoted many times throughout the Bible, you have the foolishness of men on one side and God's sovereignty on the other side. Kind of like the psalmist is juxtaposing them. And verse 1 says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? (laughs) It's such a foolish idea, an idiotic idea to think that men can take on God can play the, the, the role of God, that men can win a battle over a sovereign God. The arrogance of a proud posture like that is an absolute joke. That's why in verse seven, the psalmist says, he who sits in heavens, what? Laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You think you're a big deal, Hasherus? You really think you're a big deal? You think you're in charge of everything? God laughs at the arrogance of men pretending to take the place of God. You see, there's no doubt that this king, King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes was a big deal. But what we discover is that Jesus is the real deal. (laughs) He is. The big deals of the world, right? Whether they're in the 5th century BC or 21st century AD, the Obamas or whomever you're thinking of, will eventually bow before the authority of Jesus. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every king, every rich person, every poor person has an expiration date. Everyone will bow down to the authority of Jesus. So for example, this king, he was over, his dominion was over 127 provinces. That was his dominion from India to Ethiopia. But let me tell you this, all of his dominion and power his fame, they fade into insignificance and obscurity when you turn to Revelation chapter 21. And this is what it says in verse five and six. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, I'll skip a few words, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That is Jesus, the King of Kings. King Xerxes had some pretty impressive authority, right? His authority extended the borders of his influence, but compared to Jesus, it pales in comparison. The authority of King Jesus is an authority that is his to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the universe forever and ever and ever. King Xerxes put together a pretty, pretty decent banquet. I mean, 180 days, man, that's, that's you want to talk banquets? You want to talk banquets? Revelation chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb Church will be a part of that. Read it for yourself later on. A banquet that will go on essentially forever. Not 180 days, but forever. And in order that we might get a, a little sense of what we're going to experience up there, God has left to us these little feasts that we're actually even going to experience today, communion. You know, that communion kind of gives us a glimpse into that, into that, you know, the marriage supper of the Lamb. How beautiful. And so that along the journey, Sunday by Sunday, when we gather and we, and we, and we spend time communing with God, month by month, week by week, we may pause and realize that this is a king who died in our place. Not just sat on the throne and was proud and arrogant. And no, no, no. This is a priest who suffered for our sins. And this is a prophet who spoke into our ignorance. That's our king. That's the king of kings that we worship. And the big deals of the world, again, whether they're in the 5th century BC or whether they're in the 21st century AD, will eventually bow before the authority of Jesus Christ. Listen, you think you're a big deal? (laughs) Sometimes we do. Sometimes we do, you know, it's the pride in all of us. When we don't fully surrender to Jesus daily, we're kind of like mini King Xerxes, you know? We think we're a big deal, kind of like little King Xerxes when we choose not to forgive one another, when we choose not to love one another, when we choose not to fully surrender to Jesus, to allow the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do in our heart. So friend, bow down to Jesus now, not then, now. May God help us. I'm going to ask you to read from verses 10 to 22 when you get home. But I'm, going to, I'm not going to read now. We're kind of running out of time, but I will explain it. <clears throat> and the next point that we want to make. So the first point was just to kind of recap a little bit. The big picture, the big question, the big deal, and now the big fool. The big fool. Kind of like a subtitle to that. The king lost his head and the queen lost her crown. He was a big fool. Now, <clears throat> it's pretty obvious that in verse 8, King Xerxes went for the as-much-as-you-like program when it comes to alcohol at this party. Pretty obvious. And because he had too much to drink, his judgment seemed at least to be a little impaired, at least. And one of the foolish decisions that he makes because of his pride and the alcohol that was controlling him now, he issues a command for the presence of his queen, Queen Vashti. And we're told that the reason he wanted to do this in verse 11... I'm just going to read it, was in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty for she was lovely to look at. Now, it's very important to understand this. This is not a sort of a nice husband saying, honey bunch, you know, we're having a lovely time up in here with the guys, with the friends. Would you please, would you love to come up, to just come down and meet my friends before they go home? That's not what he was saying. No, no. 
this is Mr. Big Deal after all, right? For, for King Ahasuerus, bigger is better. Everything is an indication of his majesty, boasting about his significance. And so he says to his boys, go down now and bring my queen. Go, come on, fetch, fetch. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Make sure she has her crown. What he's planning on doing is he's going to let them scrutinize and stare at his wife. Now, the Jewish commentary, we, this is pretty fascinating. I don't know if you knew this. Um, the Jewish commentaries around, they suggest, they suggest that there is actually a distinct possibility that when verse 11 says that she should come and come with her royal crown, that was all she was to come with. So naked, just the crown. So in other words, he was breaking the bounds of propriety in every possible way. Now, I can go on this, there's pages of pages of the Persian law and all that was happening then, but I'm not going to do that. But we have to highlight the fact that his condition, the condition of his heart is not a great one. Verse 7 says, marry with wine. He then issues his edict, sends for his wife. She refuses to come. And his reaction at the end of verse 12 is that he became enraged. His anger burned within him, the Bible says. Now, again, this is where reading on in the story will help us a bit. We're just going to double dip for a little bit here, okay? But yeah, anyways, we're still in chapter 1. Esther 7, 7 says, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking. Ah, this is a reoccurring thing for this guy. He drinks, and then he has a temper. In other words, the writer wants to understand, wants us to understand that there is a correlation here. And it happens over and over, a correlation between uh, his intake and his output. And what he is taking into his body, it is in some way influencing what is coming out of his body. We've all heard the saying, garbage in, garbage out, right? It's actually a biblical saying. (laughs) Did you know that? It's actually a biblical saying, and what you reap is what you sow. That's what it is. It's not my goal here to camp on this for a long time and talk about the abuses of alcohol and other substances, but let me just say a couple of things in passing. It is super clear that the Bible condemns drunkenness. Everyone with me on that? Okay, amen. What I want to focus on, and I would love for us to really get the heart of God behind this, because we can substitute alcohol for so many other substances and things that we can get drunk on. The Apostle Paul, while he encourages Timothy to take a little bit of wine for his stomach issues, he cautions the Ephesian church to not have too much wine, to not get drunk, so that they become immoral, corrupt, and depraved. I'll actually read it to you, Ephesians 5.18. And do not get with drunk, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That's what he says. Now, the point that Paul is making is absolutely clear for the Ephesian church and for us, for any Christian Live, that lived in any, any, any age, that includes us, that there's a huge no-go area, church, when it comes to the issue of a Christian being controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit. That's the point. It is not acceptable, it is not okay, not normal for a Christian to be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit. Now, Scripture is very clear that we ought not to be out of control, out of whack, and that's, that, that should be very, convincing, uh, very convicting, right? We may not have a problem with alcohol, but some of us have a problem with being, you know, being controlled by food, right? That, that's, that's a problem. Or by watching Netflix, you know, binge-watching Netflix too much, or social media, or sports, or hobbies. Anything that takes your time, too much of your time, that controls you. 
A good question to ask to assess our heart is this. Where do I spend my time? Where, do I, where, where, where does my money go or my resources go? Where does my mind go to when I'm not supposed to be thinking, you know, where does my mind go to when I'm not supposed to be thinking about something specific at work? What does it go to? That's very telling a lot of times, what you're controlled by. The only out of control that the Bible points to, church, is being filled with the Spirit of God. That kind of out of control, so to speak. What does that mean? Well, what it means is out of control with love and affection for God. How about that? Out of control with living a life of holiness and surrender to Jesus. Out of control with the good news and to share it with others. How about that? Out of control with really being open for the Holy Spirit to grow you in the, in the, in the fruit of the Spirit every single day. How about that out of control? We get the picture, right? Looking at the foolish decisions that this king made, let me ask you this. Do you realize how in a moment of foolish and reckless passion, you can alter your life forever? Isn't it amazing and funny at the same time? He spent all of this time explaining how much of a big shot he is. I actually think it's quite funny. I'm in control of everything. The world bows down to me. Watch this, you guys. Go fetch my wife right now. Um, <clears throat> sir, uh, she's not coming. What? What? And then I think this is funny too, namely, that he is put in this awkward and humiliating position of creating legislation of making a law to impose on others what he had been unable to achieve himself. How funny is that? So he issues an edict so that all the chauvinistic men in his little world will not be subjected and exposed to the same thing as himself, being humiliated, being, being humbled. He thinks that his edict is going to achieve for them what he couldn't achieve as the king of the known world. Now that is funny. And we see this in verses 19 and 20, if you want to read. Again, to finish the point, what can we learn from this? Well, it's very clear to me. Do not be intoxicated and controlled by anything else other than the Holy Spirit. And pursue humility. That's it. Last point. The big idea. We're going to finish with this. So big picture, big question, big deal, big fool. And that last big idea. What's the big idea? Well, the big idea is this. This is a mind-blowing and at the same time a beautiful picture. Check this out, church. Of God's providence and at the same time of God's deliverance. That's what we see. And this is the, the two themes that we see throughout the whole Bible, not just the book of Esther. We see this beautiful picture of God's providence and God's deliverance at the same time. The big idea is this, that God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything, church. That's, that's the reality. That he is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his goodness, glory, his power, his perfection, and his wisdom, justice, and truth. And that nothing happens except through him and by his will. That's the big idea. That's the big idea that runs all the way through Esther. That nothing happens except through him and by his will. Also, God never fails to meet his people's needs. You need to hear that this morning, that God, even though his providence, if you look at it, you can be overwhelmed, but God never fails to meet his people's needs. God knew that his people were facing starvation in Egypt, right? We knew that he would need somebody in a position to 
in Egypt to deal with all the starvation. And, you know, he had the perfect man. His name was what? Joseph. But what a strange, what a convoluted way to get Joseph to a position of power, right? So let me ask, where was God when Joseph, when his brothers threw him in a pit? What was God then? When was God when he was thrown in jail? What was God doing then? God was fulfilling his glorious plan. That's what he was doing. A unified plan for all of history. And at the same time, he was taking care of his children, of his people. In church, the biggest need that we have is the need to be saved and then the physical needs. Let's, let's keep that order. And when we go through the book of Esther, we're, we're, we're going to discover that God is placing his servants in the right spot for the right task at the right moment. Like Esther to become queen. And God made her beautiful for a glorious reason, right? And not, 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 not that she, she could boast and be proud of it. Right And by the way, God determined your DNA and my DNA also. And by the way, if you're pretty, you better not be proud. <laughs> you, you can be proud if you're pretty at 70. That's kind of on you. You're being a good steward of your body. I'm kind of kidding, right? But you can't be proud if you're pretty at 17 because you have no, no part in your face at that, at that age. But by the way, if you're bright, there's no place to be arrogant, God made you that way. He ordered your steps, the boundary of your habitations, as the psalmist says. So we're going to discover that God uses and arranges even the smallest events to achieve the greatest results. God's providence is flawless and has no blind spots. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing happens without his permission. Even the worst thing that will happen in your life, church, will turn out ultimately for our good if you love the Lord. Do you believe that? That's the test. So the real test of the doctrine of providence is not in the opening phrase of the song, it is well with my soul. And the opening lyric goes something like this, when peace like a river attendeth my way. Oh boy, that's a good day. Feeling good. Just got the blood test back. Came back negative. None of my kids are in jail. My wife still lives with me. That's an awesome day. Praise God. It's the second line that really gets us, isn't it? When sorrows like sea billows roll. That's the test of providence. That's the test. That's where we're either going to take God at his word and trust him that he's involved in all the details, that nothing is out of control and that nothing will get out of control, or we can just break down and break apart and be filled with depression and anxiety and fear and stress. We're so tempted, church, to look at life based on seasons. Why is God not here with me in this season? Why am I suffering now? Why is it me? Why is it me? Why not him? Why me? We say stuff like, we, we, the answer must come quicker. The resolution must be now, now, today, church. If we try and examine the small immediate events of our lives here and now in this immediate season, we will almost inevitably go wrong, almost. Because we only see bits. We only see in part. The providence of God is an absolutely mind-blowing, marvelous mosaic that none of us can see. So draw close to him and trust in him and be faithful to him. That's the point. I want to end with this. Proverbs 18.10 says, the name, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. 
Isaiah 40, 11 says this as well. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Church, I'm going to say something again that I've been kind of saying, but now I'm stating this officially, something kind of crazy but biblical. Even the bad times are good. Even the bad times are good. Church, these two passages that I just read to you is what we see in the Bible over and over and over and over and over and over again. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be praying for healing as we prayed earlier. That doesn't mean that God, that we shouldn't pray that God would change our circumstances. No, no, no. We still pray for healing. We still pray that God would provide on a daily basis. And we're still responsible to make right choices every moment of our life. But we need to know as we pray for healing in a change of circumstance that whatever God allows in our life is his glorious and loving plan in motion and it's good for us. Amen. Loved ones, that's security. That's biblical theology. That's not some superficial feel-good notion that a lot of churches are pushing for, a lot of pastors are pushing for, a lot of books written on this feel good, God is for me to feel good. No, no. That, that, that through the dangers and through the tears and through the heartbreaks, when, when you're overwhelmed by the wave after wave, the reality that there's a ton of stuff I don't know and you don't know either. And I'm not skilled to understand it. I'm not even supposed to understand it. But I understand this, that, a, that at God's right hand, I have a savior that loves me. And if you don't have that today, friend, you got to have that today. And you got to trust in him today. And you got to respond with all your life following him. In two weeks again, we have a baptism. Come and talk to me or Lucas. You need to respond to the gospel and be in Christ. Receive the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. Because what is our only hope in life and in death, church? What is our only hope? That we're not our own body and soul, both in life and in death. We are, we belong to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is it. And he's faithful to bring us to the finish line, isn't he? Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.